You are listening to SPN, the Sports Podcasting Network. Hey, wow. You know what? The imagination now. Everybody has changed. Now they're getting so uh, creative in terms of their thinking and what they can do. Man, it's, it's, this is the best I've seen. Yeah, when you jump that damn high, you got a lot of time. to up the floor. Reads a drop down. Kobe! Blocked by LeBron. That basketball will never be the same. So that now has entered the fray. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Easy. And welcome to Hardwood Radio. I'm Kevin, joined as always by Ben. And today it's our great pleasure to have Jeff Shelby. Coach Jeff Shelby. How are you doing tonight? I'm good, guys. How are you? Very good. Uh, aside from the fact there's a freaking snowstorm outside here, I'm doing great. <laughs> yeah, there's about a foot of snow dumping on our head as we speak. Oh, gosh. I am very sorry. I am I am in Texas today, and it is, I believe it was around 63, 64, so I won't mention that again. <laughs> <laughs> that is summer weather for us. There you go. <laughs> Coach, if you can just... Uh, Introduce yourself to our listeners a little bit. Uh, your uh, your high school coaching for decades. Can you just uh, just lay the groundwork a little bit? Yeah, um, I you know I was as a kid I was a basketball player and you know was was kind of a basketball nerd and I kind of fell into a coaching job at a camp in Massachusetts in 1992. Um, I was just looking. I was living in California at the time and I was looking to spend some time on the East Coast. And there was an ad for a camp and they needed somebody to help with the basketball program. And so I sent a resume and the guy hired me. And so I got to spend this summer, basically 10 weeks in Massachusetts at this camp, um, coaching basketball. And that was my first, my first go at it. And I had no idea if I was going to be any good at it. I had no idea if I was going to like it, but it was something that I wanted to try. And I was 22, I think back then, 21, 22 years old. And, um, you know, I had a really good time with it. And, over over the next almost 20 years off and on, um, I coached everything from little kids, like four- and five-year-old kids, nice. um, on up through the high school levels, both boys and girls. Um, you know, and I, I, was, I was a head coach at the middle school level, but then at the high school level, I settled into um, an assistant coach and coaching the, the sub-varsity kids, um, you know, and, and being an assistant coach at the varsity level, um, I, I found that... that I really enjoyed working with younger players and watching them develop and get better over a period of time. And, and that was, you know, I, I don't know whether I was any good at it or not, but that was certainly where, where, you know, my interest lied and, and where I had, I had a lot of fun. So, um, I semi-retired about three years ago to spend time with my family, my kids, and just kind of let life settle down a little bit. And, it's been a nice place, but every time, you know, the season rolls around, you kind of get that itch to get back in the gym and kind of see what's going on. And you keep your eye on the game, whether it's NBA or college games or, or whatever. So that's, that's kind of it in a nutshell. Is there a lot of high school basketball in the, on, the, on TV in the, the U.S.? Um, you know, there is, you know, in Texas, you can find high school sports of any kind because Texas <laughs> is so sports crazy. Um, but we're starting to see more and more – um, particularly, you know, the, the program <laughs> national attention, 
um, whether it be the school in, I can't, I'm, I'm blanking on the, the name of the school in Vegas or Oak Hill or, or any of the, the prep schools that, that really draw kind of the high-level boys' talent, um, those games you can usually find. We'll see them on ESPN every so often. Um, and in Texas, we see high school games pretty regularly on some of the regional networks. Um, nice. So. One thing that really interests me, Coach, is uh, the infrastructure of development in basketball. It wasn't; it used to be not mainstream, and slowly with the D League and everything, it's becoming there. Can you explain to us, uh, at the high school level and lower, how the development system is built, how that pyramid is slowly getting the players up to that higher, higher elite level? Well, I think it's I think it's changed significantly, probably over the last. I would say 10 years. You know, it used to be pretty simple where, you know, you played it, you played as a young kid, um, you know, whether that be elementary school or middle school, um, you know, and then if you're good enough, you played in high school. And then there are multiple levels in college, but the best players, you know, whether they're men or women, play, you know, at the Division I level. So at the schools that you're familiar with, Duke, Kentucky, those schools. Um, and then, you know, the best of the best there then they would progress on to play in the NBA or overseas. Um, what, what I think has changed significantly um, now is that, that particularly at the high school level, um, it's, it's become a year-round sport, as most high school sports have become. Kids are, kids are expected to kind of identify and pick a sport early on and, and not play, you know, three, four, five sports um, when they're younger. Um, and so that's... I think resulted in that is you now see kids playing year round on the competitive summer programs. Um, they'll play, you know, in fall leagues, but, but there, there's quite a, I don't know what you want to call it, a, 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 a push um, for, you know, the kids who are, who are quite talented to play, you know, year round and play for these clubs when they're not playing for schools. Um, you know, and that primarily, you know, is, is now how kids gain the attention of schools if they're trying to play in college. So I think that's the, the biggest, you know, change that we've kind of seen, uh, that high school scene has kind of exploded. And, you know, I think you can make all sorts of arguments as to whether or not, you know, kids should pick one sport early on and, and stick with it. I, I'm, I'm not necessarily a proponent of that, but I think kids who, who are able to decide, yeah, you know, basketball is my thing, I think the options to them for them to to get better and maybe improve their chances of playing college or, or whatnot um, are better. I think it's still, you know, it's a, it's, it's a crapshoot. It's a lottery. You know, kid, there, mm -hmm. there are plenty of kids who say they want to play in the NBA, but there are very, very few who have the talent to do so. And, you know, the same goes on the women's side. You know, it used to be thought that it was fairly easy for, for girls to, you know, uh, garner scholarships at Division One schools if you were an average athlete, but I would say that the talent pool there has shifted significantly too, and it's it's nearly as competitive for for young women to to play at a high level in high school and, and gain the attention of, of top level co college programs. Nice. I have a question. Like for you, let's say you there's a kid who walks in the gym and you know exactly that he's going to be an NBA player. What is what are the key skills he has? Oh gosh! Um, if you, you know, know immediately, like if you if you see him, you go, okay, this kid, this kid does not belong here. This kid does, belongs to another level. Sure, I, you know, I think the the obvious, you know, there's the obvious things, right? Size and athleticism. I, I think you know anybody can see those. You know, we I, we played the the school that one of the schools that I coached for down here. Um, we were in the, I was coaching girls down here in Texas, but our boys team played against the, the same school that Julius Randall played at. 
Okay. And okay. So I, we would see him in the gyms. You know, the girls would play before the boys or concurrently or, or whatnot. And, you know, you would see Julius Randle at 6'8, six, 6'9, six, you know, just walking into the gym and go, wow, he looks a little different. Not just because he was large, but necessarily because the way he carried himself. And then you see them when they get out on the floor and he's playing with kids that are significantly smaller than him, than him but yet his skill level. He doesn't look like the big clunky guy running up and down the court. Mm-hmm. You know, he has he has skills that are just as good as as the smaller guards and whatnot. And I, I I think that's that's a long way of saying what you see are kids who can do nearly everything better than everybody else. Okay, um, they handle the ball. They understand spacing. Um, they they understand how to defend. Um, and they just have a knack for being around the ball. Um. You know, and you and you can see it whether you're doing drills, whether you're watching film, or, or or anything like that. They just tend to stick out because they do everything pretty well. The deficiencies aren't as as glaring as they might be on you know your average players. You mentioned coach size and athleticism. There's a new trend in the NBA, maybe started or continued by Steph Curry. Now that skills and technique are getting over the fact that he might be small and not that athletic. Uh, what is your thought on that new trend that uh, we've seen in soccer for decades, but the fact that you know, younger, smaller, more skilled and more technique players are starting to uh, break through now in uh, the college and the professional levels? You know, I think the great thing about, about, about a guy like Steph Curry is that he gives guys and, and girls who aren't blessed with, with that kind of size, you know, they, they don't have natural born, you know, athleticism or, or size. But, but I think what you can see is, is a certain amount of if, if you bust your tail and, and work on some things and pay attention, then you can get really good. You know, I, I think it's far easier for, you know, a kid like me, I'm five foot ten. You know, if I'd had a kid like that, I, I always gravitated towards smaller players, right? We, we always look to, like, the players who are smaller like us, and, you know, that's who we pretend to be when we're out in the driveway or in the gym. And, you know, when I was a high school kid, you know, I looked at the, the smaller the smaller players, you know, that were in the NBA and, and, you know, wanted to be like them. And I think that, you know, what a guy like Curry does is is, is, is help those those kids go, wow, well, I might not be six foot nine, I might not be 250, you know, I might not be able to jump out of the gym, but my goodness, can that guy shoot? Maybe if I shoot a thousand shots a day, maybe I could shoot like that. Now, will he or she be able to do that? Probably not, because, <laughs> because there, there's still, you know, something I think innate with Curry, particularly about the way he grew up around the game and, and with his dad. And, you know, there, there there are some special things there that just can't be copied or 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 garnered through hard work. But, you know, I think I, I think it 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 gives hope to maybe some of the, those people who aren't born six foot 10 to say, Oh, well, you know what? Maybe, maybe I'm going to work on my shooting rather than, you know, just try to dunk the ball every time. Mm-hmm. Tell me, um, you know, I mean, we've been learning out for a couple of years together online now. Right. And you know, I'm a draft nut, right? Yeah. I know a little bit about like the call the the, the pro uh, drafting process, but the college recruitment process is very uh, still alien to me. Let's say you got a, a senior in your gym. He is like six eight. He he is like the living embodiment of LeBron James, and now it's the first day of his senior year. What happens? Well, if he's six eight and and he's similar to LeBron, he would have already been here from school as his freshman year. Oh yeah, uh, 
you know, oh my gosh, that those I believe there's there's recruiting services now in the U.S. where they're ranking kids as low as like sixth grade, where they're at what eleven, twelve years old, which seems ludicrous to wow. me because for for a number of reasons, right? I mean, we you don't know what you don't know how they're going to grow, you don't know what their skill progression is going to be like. It just seems a little bit silly, and that goes back to what I was talking about earlier about making kids you know, choose a sport and stick with it and ignore others early on. And again, I'm, I'm not a proponent of that, but if you have a kid like, if you have a kid like that, um, he, he's going to get early, early attention, particularly if he's large for his age. Um, you know, particularly if he can do some things, whether it's handle the ball or, or shoot the ball. And if he's, if he has showcased himself in some of the national summer tournaments, um, there's going to be a lot of attention. And, and if he progresses to his senior year, right. With that, still with that kind of, you know, upside and, and interest level from the coaches, you're going to see coaches from the schools that are, that are interest, interested in him. If he's probably narrowed his list by then, um, if he hasn't already committed, if he's narrowed his list to five, ten schools, the coaches are, you're going to have coaches for, from those schools at every single game he or she plays. They're just going to be there because they want the kid to know that they're interested, that they haven't forgotten. They're trying to make him feel like the most important person on the planet. Now, the flip side of that is they're doing that with like 15 kids, right? I mean, yeah. they're, not, they're not just doing it with one kid, but, you know, they're, they're trying to make the kids that they really want to get a hold of, you know, let them know, hey, you're our guy, come to our school. Um, you know, a lot of it, a lot of it depends on the, the, the player's family structure um, and their relationship with the coaches. Um, you know, a, a lot of families will choose to control the recruiting process themselves. And, and by that, I mean, they'll say everything has to go through mom or dad. You don't, okay. contact, you don't contact the kid without, without going through us. Um, okay. You know, okay. and in other situations, the coach will kind of be the conduit between the, the, the player and the schools. Um, and that could be the high school coach. That could be the, the AAU or club coach. Um, it just varies from situation to situation. Um, there's a really unique situation here in the uh, – not, not unique, but the uh, the number one ranked um, girls high school in the player this year, a senior, um, and she's committed to Baylor, lives here um, right near where I'm at in the Dallas area. And um, her dad – and I can't remember her, her, her parents' history, but um, I think both of her parents were, were college athletes. They kind of knew the game, in other words. They, mm-hmm. they knew – and they knew how the recruiting process worked. And they basically – shut everybody down they they got their list and then they said leave her alone and she's going to wow. make her choices. um you know they didn't want her bothered they didn't want her hassled they didn't want her stressed out by the process and they didn't want it getting ridiculous and you know that that to me would if i had a kid like that that would probably be the way that i would want to approach it too um because i think you know it's one of those things we've, we've heard horror stories about you know coaches getting out of control and you know you're contacting kids 15 times a day and there's all sorts of rules you know, about coaches contact and that kind of thing now, but that doesn't mean that everybody adheres to them. Um, what, so what is the, what is the worst horror story or recruiting horror story you've ever heard? Oh gosh. I, you know, there, there was a book, oh gosh, and I'm going to blank on the name of it. Um, <laughs> and it was written in probably late eighties, early nineties. And it detailed, um, when Jim Valvano was at North Carolina state um, back in the early 80s. And that was really kind of when recruiting was running rampant and that there were no controls in place. And schools were paying kids, um, you know, offering them all sort of incentives to come to, come to places one, 
doing anything they could basically to get kids to come to their school. Um, but before it seemed to kind of settle back down, and I remember there was tons of stuff in that book that was just kind of mind-boggling. You know, there's the it, it's really funny to me. Um, my cousin and I talk. He he's a big basketball guy too, so we we talk basketball nearly every day. And you know, we laugh all the time. Dwayne Casey, right, the coach of the Raptors. Yes, he was involved. He he was basically the money guy in a huge scandal involving Chris Mills, who ended up attending Eric. Really? Arizona, um, but was slated to go to Kentucky, and there was a whole thing with a FedEx envelope involving money and all. (laughs) And and he was the fall guy for it, and I think for a long time he was he was kind of blackballed, and 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 was was nobody kind of wanted to touch him. And then he slowly but surely somehow repaired his reputation and got through the ranks. And I don't know what was true and what was not, but he was always the name that was linked to Chris Mills, and that was uh, gosh, that would have been late eighties, probably early nineties, somewhere in there. Wow. <laughs> One thing that really that uh, intrigues me as well, Coach, is uh, tactically in high school, uh, where are the players at? What is the thing that you focus more when you were coaching in high school compared to college or even pros? Uh, different defensive, offensive. What are the things that are focused on in the coaching aspect in high school basketball? Um, you know, it, it depends on your personnel, right? It depends on how good you are. It depends on... Uh, you know, it depends on how committed you are in the program. The program that I was here, we did a lot of prep work and we basically played year round and we scouted our opponents and we watched a lot of film and, you know, those kinds of things. I think one of the big things is if if you have a coach who really understands defensive concepts and and, and that coach says, we're going to take away your best player on the other side, that is really hard for high school kids and high school teams to adjust to. If, if you're used to relying on that one kid who scores 20 to 25 points a game, gets 10 rebounds a game, and is kind of, you know, kind of your star, for lack of a better word. And almost every it, school has one of those, right? right? It, 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 seemingly so, yeah. Certainly, certainly teams that are successful, yeah, absolutely. Um, y- you know, I, if you have a coach that can design schemes to you know, take that kid out of his or her rhythm – um, you know, and cut their points in half and, and frustrate them, you know, and get in their head a little bit and deny them the ball, that kind of thing. It tends to throw everything out of rhythm and, and you, you can usually have a little success against that um, because you just don't have, you don't have the, the kind of personnel on a high school team for other kids to take over because usually they're not used to doing it. You know, you usually rely on that, that one kid. Now, teams that have two, three kids that are really good, that's a whole different thing. But I think on average – you can identify the best player um, on the team that you're playing, and, and and if you know what his or his or her strengths are, um, and, and you can design something to take them out of that their element, whether that's denying them the ball early, you know, whether that's forcing them further out or to a side that they prefer to play on, and, and pushing them into their, you're pushing them out of their comfort zone, you can usually have you know a fair amount of success. That reminds me of how the Spurs beat LeBron James in 2014's finals. Yeah, that's exactly it, right? <laughs> they, they 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 blocked him. They 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 put Kawhi Leonard on him. They confined him to the perimeter, and he just got he just had his soul sucked away from him. Basically. Yeah, and, and, right? he didn't he didn't really have anywhere to go to, and the rest of the team they were they they had no idea what to do because they had leaned on him for so long. So you know the concepts aren't really different. Certainly the the level of skill and, 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 you know, ability to adjust and adapt are different, but the concept's the same. You know, if you can, if you can hinder 
and, and take out the best player on the on the floor, you know, your chances of success usually go up pretty pretty significantly. <laughs> Um, tell me, uh, I, you told me a story once, and I really want our listeners to know a little more about, more about that. You have the privilege to coach one of my favorite players ever in a summer camp in the 90s, Mr. Chauncey Billups himself, Mr. Clutch. So tell me, what kind of guy was he? Did he did, was anything about him, about his personality that was different from other kids? Yeah, you know, I, we were talking about that, and I, I'm trying to rack my brain how I got I, – I, I probably talked my way into working, you know, some camp in Colorado at the time. I don't even remember how I how I got to do that, but it was a week <laughs> – you know, it was – I think it was a, a week-long summer camp, you know, something in, in Colorado, and I, it might have been through the YMCA. I don't even remember. Um, but, you know, he he was – he is still probably – the best high school player to, you know, come out of the state of Colorado. And when he was playing high school in Colorado, you know, it was everybody was paying attention. Um, and when he decided to stay home and go to the University of Colorado to play basketball rather than go to Kansas, which is kind of where we thought he was going, it was a big deal. Um, and it kind of revitalized the program for a couple of years. They won some huge games. Um, they, they kind of got some national attention for a while. You know, he was one of those kids who you just knew. He just had a presence about him. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when he was not, not only was he he was so smooth on the floor, he could just do everything well, and he was just better than everybody else at everything. Um, but he just he had a confidence, and he wasn't arrogant. He was a he was a very polite, nice kid. And I think if you if you think about the people that have spoken about him throughout his career. They've all said the same thing, you know, that he was a really good guy. Even when Patino screwed him over in Boston, you know, he, he was a good guy. And, and, and as he got older and kept staying in the league year after year, you know, that teams were, teams were kind of getting him to hang around to be that, that positive veteran leader that, that so many teams seem to try to find to guide their younger players. And, and he kind of slipped quite nicely into that role. And I think, I think people could see that early in Colorado when he was a kid. He just he was a he was a quiet leader and and just a guy who could compete and he would make big shots, you know. And he just he did everything that you'd hope, you know, uh, a basketball player would do. And on top of that, just seemed like a really good kid and, and ended up turning into a really good person. Before we talk about uh, coach about the Nets, uh, basically sweep they did in the front office and on the sidelines uh, last week, I have a question to ask to you. Uh, one thing that really surprises me is when a team like the 76ers this year are not tanking, but they're tanking. Uh, as a coach, how would you react to that situation? What do you do when you're stripped of your best component and you have to coach what you're stuck with? Basically, what would you do if you were Brett Brown? Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I regret, you know, I don't know. My cousin and I were talking about this the other day, and it, it has to just be the most miserable position to be in, right? I mean, he has virtually no control, but yet he still has to go out there every night and try to out how to try to figure out how to win with with a roster that's not built to win. Um, I, I, I would assume that what he does is, is he probably try to focuses on the little things and and whether that's individually trying to get guys better at certain things, better skills, um, or whether that's, you know, trying to get the team to do little things better from game to game. You know, I, I wouldn't think that he would look too far ahead. I would imagine that it's very much day to day and very much game to game. 
um, and trying to to improve and change things. But I, I just I, I can't imagine you know what it's like for him to go home at the end of the day. Do you and, think he's doing a good job? I, I you know I actually do. Uh, you know I. That's the sad part. Right. I, 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 it is right. I mean, it's not his fault. You know, the roster construction isn't his fault. And they've won what four games. Yes. I, I mean, for a while, it didn't look like they might they, they were going to win it at all. So, you know, four games, we laugh and go, ha ha, four games. But then you look at the roster construction again and go, you know, what? actually winning four games probably isn't that bad, given given what he's got. And, I, you know, I think it speaks to, you know, his his ability and and his his sincerity in his coaching and again who knows what's going on behind the scenes you know with the hiring of Colangelo and and, and all that Mike stuff Tony. yeah who knows right? <laughs> who knows what's going on there I I would hope for his sake because he certainly you know coming off the Popovich tree you know he certainly seems like a guy who knows what he's doing and, and I have great sympathy for for him going out there every night and getting his head kicked in. Because I can see, like, I watch, I watch a lot of Philadelphia games, especially only because they're always the first to start their games at 7 at night uh, on uh, NBA TV. And it makes sense. I mean, like, his offense is just, like, I can see he's running a dribble drive offense. As I can see the guys know what they have to do. They just can't execute. Yeah, I think it's, you know, you know if you compare them to the Lakers, right? Mm-hmm. You know, Byron Scott you know, coaches as if he's never played a game of basketball in his life. And, <laughs> and again, I don't, I don't know whether that's, that, that's his own ineptitude or whether that's directions from the front office. Who knows, right? Again, mm-hmm. every, we're guessing at everything because we don't know. Um, but I think that's the thing, right? If you watch the Sixers, he's clearly not mailing it in. Whatever they're doing from a practice and, and game prep standpoint, he's not mailing it in because they do do some things right. And, and, and it's very clear that he has an influence over what they're doing. Um, I, I think it would be very easy to to mail it in and, and not work hard as a coach when when you're in that kind of situation, um, you know. But I, I I would have to think he, he's hoping one of two things. Either one, you know, that this whole process that 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 Hinky has put in place will will come to fruition and they'll end up being a pretty good team. And you know, you can argue whether or not this whole this whole idea of creating cap space is going to bring guys there, and I I don't think it will because they're so bad. Um, <laughs> But, but I, you know, for, for his sake, it would be great if they did. I, you know, for Brown, I think it would be a great reward. You know, the, the other side of it is he probably knows that there's a plan in place and he's not going to be around if they ever do get good. But what he's doing is putting, putting together on his resume, look, this was a situation I was in and I did the best I could. And, and I think people in the know around the league would probably say, yeah, we know you were in an awful position and we saw what you did and we don't care what the record was. We, we saw what you were doing, you know, from a basketball know-how standpoint. So. He's going to be a basketball refugee. I, 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 you, know, who, I, you know, for his sake, I, I, like I said, I hope they either get really good and win under him or I hope, like, Popovich retires and the Spurs hire him because, I, you know, he, he just deserves something after, after <laughs> there. Yeah, most likely. Um Tell me, what, what kind of offense were you running in high school? Oh, gosh. Um, you know, it just depended. Uh, it was really funny. When I was in Colorado, mm-hmm. I, I, I was at this school where, you know, we had, we had a varsity, a JV, and two freshman teams. And, and when I started working there, the freshman teams basically were kind of afterthoughts. You know, and, and they had gone a couple years where, you know, I, I, both both the freshman and AB teams hadn't they hadn't won 
they'd won like two games in like three years or something like that. I mean, it was, it was really, it was really kids who, who, who hadn't played a lot of basketball and probably weren't getting a whole lot of direction. Um, and it was one of those things where I had to kind of figure out, okay, what are, what are we going to do here to, to help these kids be successful? And we ended up running a five out where we just kind of spaced out on the perimeter and we moved the, all we did was pass and cut. Um, because it lent itself to, I I could teach them in practice how to pass and cut and work from a triple threat position and Mm -hmm. how to drive to the basket and, you know, do simple, simple fundamental moves. And we could do those every day. We could drill them day after day after day. And then they could use those once we went into the game and it ended up being pretty successful. We went, you know, these kids were not winning games and we, we started scoring, I think in the forties, fifties, sixties, which was a lot for freshman kids because it was just it was a very simple offense um you know here in texas um we we ran a a fairly i i I don't want to say sophisticated offense but we ran a lot of different sets um where we we were pretty unpredictable on offense um we we were pretty good um and so we ran lots of stuff that that played to the strengths of of our personnel um so whether that was whether that was making threes, whether that was hitting the girl in the post, whether that was you know running cutters through the middle, it ju- it just depended. But but our kids were expected to to know and and absorb quite a bit and be ready because um, we didn't really run you know we didn't run a flex, we didn't run you know a dribble drive. We really ran different sets down the floor every time trying to confuse defenses. Nice. So you had a very clever, uh, very um, versatile, uh, effective. A- absolutely. Okay. I, I think I think the worst thing that you can do as a basketball team is be predictable, right? I mean, yeah. don't don't make it easy on the defense. the 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 more that the defense can relax, the the easier it is for them to play. I was at, I was actually at a game in a high school game in Minnesota two weeks ago, and and it was a boys' game, and this one team clearly had the best player on the floor. Um, and this other team was, they were undersized. They didn't have a lot of athleticism and they were basically, they pressed a little bit and then they were kind of playing a, an extended zone. Okay. And, and this other team with the great player, all they did the entire game for f- the entire game, they ran kind of this lazy high low and it didn't, uh, and you could see this smaller, undersized team gain confidence as the game wore on because they stayed close. And it was simply because they knew what they, they, they figured out that every time they came down the floor, they were going to see the same exact thing. And I think that's just that's one of the worst things that you can do in basketball is be predictable. You, you want to stress the defense, right? You want to put them in a position to try to get them on their heels and to, to take away some of their aggressiveness. And the way that you do that is by not letting them know what you're going to do every single time down the floor. If you run every, if you run the same thing every single time, no matter how good your players are, the defense will adjust and they don't have to work as hard. If if you come down one time and and you know run something on the strong side and and skip the ball to the weak side, you know, and then the next time down you're running cuts off the block. If you're doing different things every time down, the defense is constantly having to adjust and think, and that wears them out. Who do you think run the best sets in the NBA, the Spurs or the Golden State Warriors? Oh, gosh. Uh, <laughs> that's a tough one. That's a really tough one. You know what? I, I'll say San Antonio because they're, they're so disciplined. Um, you know, I, I don't know that there's, there's enough 
there's probably not not a tangible difference between the two teams because Golden State has has gotten so good as well. I, I would say here, th- this is the difference to my eyes, right? San Antonio will run run sets for multiple guys. Um, you know, the majority of Golden State stuff is run for for Curry, of course. And when he's not on the floor, then you're looking at Thompson probably. Okay. Um, but it it seems like San Antonio runs different things for different guys down the floor all the time or out of out of bounds plays. You know, and where there's there's more than two options, they're they're getting you know maybe three options. He he used Popovich used to run this. It was this simple sideline out of bounds play, you know, where they basically, you know, would kind of set up in sort of a triangle. And there were so many darn options coming out of it, it was nearly impossible to defend. And again, you have to have the skilled players to execute that kind of stuff, right? But yeah, but it was it was just so simple to run. But there were so many options out of it. And it was just brilliant. So I. To me, to me, I guess I'd say San Antonio, but I will always default to Popovich because I just think he's so good, and I, you know, that's not original in any way, but he's just so good. Uh, coach, there's one topic that I've talked to actual professional players in many different sports about, but never to a coach. When there's a firing of a head coach in light of the Nets' clean sweep, uh, how does a coach approach the actual transition in a season? Is there a mythical coach bump? Is it true? Is it hard to change all the tactics mid-season? Uh, what's the approach of a coach? How do you see that situation? Well, l- let me first say the, the benefit of always being a lower level or assistant it coach is you rarely get really, <laughs> <laughs> that, that was always about job security for me. Sure. Um, you know, I, I think it just depends. Um, I think it depends on who's brought in. And I think it depends on the circumstances that lead to the coaches firing. You know, I, I think if you look at New Jersey, right, I, I don't really see what the point was of firing Hollins. Um, they're, I don't care who they bring in. They're not going to get any better. Um, <laughs> that, that, again, I think is probably a roster construction issue and a Joe Johnson god-awful contract issue. Oh, yeah. um, I just I don't know that they can I don't know that they can bring in a coach who can be a difference maker with the personnel that they have on the floor. Um, I know that Hollins has a reputation for being kind of a strict dude and, and a guy who didn't take a lot of crap and not necessarily a players coach. At least that was his rep. I think when he was in Memphis, um, you know, kind kind of a, a tough old school kind of guy. Um, so I don't, but but I don't necessarily think he was a bad coach either. And I don't, you know. Certainly, New Jersey underperformed in the first part of the season, but I don't really know how many games you, that, that they're thinking they, they can win. Um, you know, I, I think the other side of it is, is if you look at Houston, you know, they, they cut McHale loose right away. And Ben and I talked about this a little bit, you know, where there, there was probably an urgency on their part being in the West that, that they thought that they couldn't get too far behind, so they had to do it. Um, I think McHale was generally liked. And, and I think, by and large, was a pretty good coach. Um, you know, and they bring in Bickerstaff, and they haven't really done a whole lot. I, they, they certainly haven't recovered from the start. Um, but I don't know that you – I don't know that we've seen a bump with a guy like Bickerstaff. And, and that team, from I think everything that I read and, and heard, they, they were pretty – they were pretty pro-Bickerstaff. They, the players were happy to have him come on. Um, so in that case, you know, I don't, I don't know if it's because the players down there are head cases and they can't all get on the same page. I don't know. I don't know what it is. Um, you know, I think the only time that you really see that kind of mythical bump when you bring in a coach is when a guy is cut loose and he really wasn't well-liked by the players. And I think that goes, that goes for any sport. You know, if, 
if a coach isn't respected or, or, or isn't liked, then I think guys will play hard for the next person that comes in simply because they're, they're, they're glad to be rid of the guy that they saw as a problem. That, that person might not be any better than the person that was let go, but maybe they're better liked. Um, but in this, in both of those cases, Houston and, and Brooklyn, I don't, I don't know that those coaches were necessarily disliked. I think it was more about management's expectations, and so I don't think we've, I don't think we've seen any necessarily big changes in their play. Houston got a little bit better, but I think they flattened out a little bit. I, I don't think Brooklyn's going to be good. That period. I, I don't care who you put there. I don't think so either. I mean, this team has been that that this team is not constructed to win games now. And they don't have the assets to win games after trades. I don't think. I think their only options, honestly, I don't know if you'll agree with me, guys, is to start trading assets for draft uh, for draft picks and try to make a future. They need to make peace with the fact that they probably handed Ben Simmons to Boston for free. So I'm not sure they're ready to do that. Yeah, I I don't know. And I mean, again, Matt Johnson contract <laughs> is such an albatross, right? I mean, nobody's going to take that on, and that's. That's that's probably their biggest hurdle to clearing cap space. I, I don't know, I don't know what what they're going to do, and I don't know what they really have to offer anybody else. I think that's the problem too. I don't know. You have some guys who 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 might be valuable, you know, in, in bit roles, but I don't know that that they have anybody that they can throw out there that would necessarily lure any significant assets. I, I think they're in a huge hole. You know, well, I, I don't know how you get out of it. The only the only move I can see them doing probably is if I'm the LA Clippers, I want Tad Young on my bench. That's about it. That's the only move I can yeah. see them doing. Yeah, and, but I, I guess and I, I would just say that. I mean, what what, what is LA going to give up though to get him? I, I mean, the, I, I don't feel like Brooklyn has any leverage either in moving any of those guys to mm-hmm. to to get better. And I think everybody knows it. So I, I, I don't know that the Clippers want Young bad enough to, to really give up anything significant. Um, I think they might hunt around the league for other similar pieces before they part with anything significant to get a guy like Young, who's, who's a nice player. But, I, you know, I, I don't know that they would, they would give up a whole lot to get him. He's a deluxe know. bench guy, like I, call, I like to call him. Absolutely right. Absolutely. He's, a very, he's a very nice guy to have on your bench, but when you have it on your starting lineup, you're – it feels a little bit depleted. Yep, yep. Uh, Coach, we're getting close to the uh, trade deadline in the NBA. It's crazy rumors. Which team, in your opinion, deserves to add a piece to go all the way or maybe to have a chance to compete against San Antonio and uh, Golden State? Because clearly those two teams are in front of everybody else. Oh, gosh. I mean, that's always interesting, right? And, <laughs> and every time we try to guess as to who's going who's gonna to do something they never do, and it's always somebody out of, out of the ordinary. Um, you know, I think the team that, that maybe has, has a piece to move um, and might be in position to, to challenge, and, I, and, and again, I think it's a bit of a reach, but I, the only team that, that comes right to mind is, is probably Miami. Um, you know, I think they're sitting at what twenty, twenty couple and fifteen or sixteen. I think um, right, right there with Atlanta. I think, and you know, I there, there's all all the chatter. And I, I was listening to Zach Lowe the other day, and you know, he was talking about you know the the, the kind of different impressions around the league of Hassan Whiteside, and, and I feel like they might have have the ability to move him if they if they decide to kind of go all in. Um, and say, okay, we think we can challenge. Now, I think that's crazy because I don't know who they could add 
that would let them challenge Cleveland. I, I just don't – I don't see that. Um, but I don't know. The Clippers, as always, are, are probably in need of, of – <laughs> they're in need of something. Um, but they, they don't always necessarily know what it is. I don't even know that I know what it is. Um, you know, I, because I, they, they feel still well short of, of where San Antonio and Golden State are. And, and you know what? This year, it, I don't I, – I feel like the gap – between San Antonio, Golden State, and, and I'll probably put Oklahoma City in there too because they've gotten. I, I think they've, they've Billy Donovan seems to start. I think he's figuring it out here over the last couple of weeks. At the gap between those three teams and everybody else, and, and maybe you throw Cleveland in there, it just seems so significant that I don't know that there are pieces out there for teams to to go and acquire or or kind of. Re- rebuild their roster in a way that would make them competitive with any of those teams. I just think those teams happen to be so good right now that 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 everybody else is playing for spots behind them. I have a quick one for you guys concerning the trade deadline. I okay. was watching uh, Atlanta and Chicago on Saturday. I compl- I stumbled on the game purely by chance. Jeff Teague sprained his ankle early in the first quarter. Dennis Schroeder came in. And the team was not the same. Uh, Dennis Schroeder romped Derrick Rose from the entire evening. It didn't show that much in his uh, stats because he kept doing the smart play, even if it was not giving him, uh, if it was not giving him an assist or points. And I think Atlanta has a trade to make. So let's say you trade Jeff Teague and some draft consideration for a dominant wing player. Who do you think can can uh, help Atlanta, and do you think that makes Atlanta a contender? Oh gosh, I don't know. I mean, I'm trying to think of a, of a of a dominant wing that would be available, you know, to them and and would fit salary wise. Um, not Joe Johnson. Uh, no. Um, <laughs> Um, I, gosh, I don't know. I, I, and again, Atlanta is one of those teams too, that, that I think you're probably right, that if they were able to get a guy like that, add that, add that piece that they would probably bump up a notch. I'm just not sure who it would be that would be available to them. Well, know? hear me out. You trade Teague, you trade Safalosha and some, somebody else and a first pick against, uh, Gordon Hayward and Trey Burke. Does that make them uh, a threat to Cleveland? Uh, I don't, <laughs> you know, I don't, I don't know that it makes them a threat. I think it makes them a better team. I don't know that it, it makes them a threat to Cleveland. I think Hayward's a nice player and, and certainly seems to be trending upward. Um, you know, he's gotten better and, you know, in, in nearly every facet. I, I don't know though. That, that it pushes them up there to be able to compete with with LeBron and Kyrie and Kevin Love. I, I don't I don't know that that their their first lineup still matches with Cleveland's. I, I if I think of them in a in a in a seven game series, I think I'd still think Cleveland would probably walk them four to one, four to two. Um, I, I don't know. I, I just don't. <laughs> you know, I, and that, that's. And again, I think that's the hard thing. I think Atlanta gets better with a trade like that. I don't know that it's enough to bump them up because, again, I think that gap between those top three or four teams is pretty significant right now. Uh, mm-hmm. Oh, I agree. Last question before we let you go, Coach. 
what is in today's basketball one of the things that impresses you the most? What is the the one aspect of the difference of today's basketball compared to maybe when you started coaching that is really fascinating for you? Yeah, well, the, the NBA coaching salaries, John Calipari, considering <laughs> that's impressive. Um, that, that, that impresses me quite a bit. Um, you know, I, I think that when you watch these guys at the NBA level, right, and we, we, can, we can make fun of the guys who we think aren't very good and who the worst coaches are, and we can talk about who the best coaches are. But I, I think it's just really hard for, for us to have an appreciation uh, of how hard it is to coach an NBA game. When you look at – the thing that always strikes me when I go to an NBA game, right, and you don't see it as much on TV, but if you're in the arena and you're sitting, you're sitting in the arena, the thing that always strikes me is how small the court looks because the players have gotten so large. Right. I mean, your, 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 your guards are now, you know, anywhere from, you know, Curry small and he's what, six, three, six, two, six, three. I mean, you know, most of your guys are in that, that six, seven, six, eight range with long arms and long legs. And the court seems so much smaller when you see guys on the floor. And I think that, you know, given how athletic these guys are, how big they are, how much more basketball these guys are playing from a young age, starting in middle school, going through high school and college. They play year round, you know, which is different than than 20 years ago where they played a season. You know, you played you played football, you played basketball, you played baseball and then you took the summer off. Um, mm -hmm. They are so good by the time that they get there. And I think that that the constant adjustments that that coaches make in game that we just don't see, whether that's, you know, defensive rotations, whether that's positioning, whether that's the sets that they're running, you know, whether that's the spacing, what, whatever it is, it, it moves so fast and it has to be so hard because those guys are so good. Um, I, I just, even, even the worst coaches, I just, you know, you know, I have such a respect for because it is just, I think it's such a hard, hard thing to do. And, and we just can't really have a true appreciation for everything that's going on in a minute by minute basis, you know, in the game, there's a, there's a reason that college coaches don't jump to the NBA and succeed for the most part. You know, Billy, Billy Donovan seems to maybe have it figured out at OKC. Hoiberg, uh, I'm not convinced on. Um, Me neither. But but in the past, we haven't seen guys, you know, jump. Patino and Calipari are great examples, right? Guys who are probably two of the five best college coaches of the last 20 years, and they both for the most part, failed in the NBA. And, and there's a reason that that happens. And, and I just don't – the jump from college to the NBA is so significant. You know, that the, there's so much going on in-game and, and from a prep standpoint that I think it's such a hard job. And I think to be prepared night in and night out, you know, is such a tough thing. And, and, and my goodness, do they work hard. Um, and, and, you know, we judge them by wins and losses, which probably isn't always fair. Um, but, but I just think it's such a hard job the amount of work that they put in and, and you know, it's, it's, it's almost a thankless position because you're going to get fired at some point, no matter how good you are. Um, you know, you just are. And, and I just, you know, I, I can't imagine having to coach these guys night in and night out and constantly have to adjust for different offenses, different sizes, different everything. And then having to change those plans as the game goes on, you know? Yeah. Well, coach, we'll never fire you. That's for sure. Hey, <laughs> Finally, job security again. I like that. <laughs> Thank you very much for joining us. It was a pleasure talking basketball with you today, Coach. Thank you so much for taking the time. Same here. Anytime, guys.
You were listening to SPN, the Sports Podcasting Network. Visit us, sportspodcastingnetwork.com.